You've just tuned into the Unify podcast from Unify Youth. Our goal is to equip young people with the Word of God so they can live empowered in Christ and tackle the challenges of this world. Tune in for weekly sermons, devotions, and interviews. Welcome to the Unify podcast. Just this past week, Taylor Swift came to Sydney for her first concert in five years here in Sydney. Hundreds of thousands of people attended and hundreds of thousands of people tried to attend but didn't manage to get a ticket. Now, some who didn't get a ticket for Sydney, they still managed to get a ticket for a different state and they flew over to that other state because they desperately wanted to see Taylor. Others who couldn't get a ticket uh, decided to go online and hope that they could get something from Facebook Marketplace. Now scammers, scammers took advantage of the situation and what they did is they hacked Facebook accounts and they posed as people wanting to sell their tickets. They would message all of the hacked accounts friends and tell them a a sob story about why they can no longer go to the concert and they really want to sell their ticket to their friend at the same price that they paid for it. Well, so desperate were people to attend that they paid into a nominated bank account immediately, only to be blocked. Some got tickets that they didn't know were fake, and others didn't get anything at all. It's estimated that $260,000 was stolen this way. And the people that bought these tickets and took them to the concert, they were stopped by security at the gate. They were not allowed to enter the concert. There's a fake sort of ticket that won't let you into the concert. Even if you sincerely and honestly bought the fake ticket or you paid hundreds of dollars for it, thousands of dollars for it, it's still a fake ticket and they won't let you in. And just like that, there is a fake sort of faith that won't let you enter the kingdom of heaven. No matter how sincere you are, no matter how much you've paid, no matter how much time you've put towards it, if it's still a fake faith, you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, our passage deals with just this fake faith and real faith, or what James calls dead faith and living faith. In fact, this is what James has really been talking about the entire letter. He's already given three tests to see if your faith is genuine. First, your response to trials and temptations back in chapter one. Second, and also in chapter one, whether you are a a hearer and a doer of the word. And third, what we looked at last week, whether you show partiality or whether you love your neighbor like God loves his people. And tonight, James's message is clear. And it's this, faith that works is living faith. Faith that works is living faith. And as we go through our passage, we're going to simply see two things. Firstly, the principle the principle, verse 14 to 17, and secondly, the argument. That's verse 18 to 26. But before we read, would you pray with me? Father, we come before your word now. 
We ask that you would help us to understand, help us to listen carefully, help us to assess whether our faith is real or fake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's see what James says. Firstly, the principle, verse 14 to 17, the principle, read verse 14 with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? How do you know if your faith is living faith? How do you know if your faith is genuine or whether it is a fake? Because there are two sorts of faith. There's living faith and there's dead faith. And not both of them are saving faith. James begins by asking a question. This is the question. Can the sort of faith that professes faith but doesn't have any work save? In other words, if I call myself a Christian, if I even prayed a prayer once upon a time but my actions say otherwise, is that sort of faith genuine? Is it saving faith? Is it living faith? Is my faith true if I don't have any works? And works here simply means responding to the word of God in obedience and doing everything to his glory. That's what a good work is. Responding to God's word in obedience and doing all that you do to the glory of God. That includes showing compassion to those in need, living uprightly, sharing the gospel with others. Whatever you do, doing it all to the glory of God. And then James gives an example. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Imagine this example. You see somebody from church and you notice that they don't have money to buy food or they're wearing old clothing that is barely holding itself together. Imagine that you see a brother or sister in need and you have all the means to help them, but instead of doing a good work, instead of helping, you say, don't worry, pal, you got this. You're cold, be warmed. You're hungry, be filled. Peace be with you. Like, seriously? Is that actually doing anything? Is that actually going to help them? Notice here, James says, if a brother or a sister He's not just talking necessarily about anyone. He's talking about someone that's within the church, someone that is close. And if this is your attitude to someone within the church, what's your attitude like with those outside the church? This sort of faith that James is describing is full of words, full of well wishes. It's full of prayers, but there's no action and this is James's point, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the answer. Is that sort of faith, saving faith, the sort of faith that professes but doesn't actually act. There are no deeds. There are no good works. James says that sort of faith, it's useless. It's dead. It's like a barren tree that produces no fruit. You know the house plant at home that you have that is meant to produce tomatoes, but it's all shriveled up and it's dry, but it's still sitting there. 
That's faith without works, barren and dead. So faith must be accompanied by works. But hang on a moment. Isn't the Apostle Paul somebody who wrote Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith? Get this. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Is Paul contradicting James when he says this? By no means. They're both writing to two different situations, two different audiences. Paul's group that he's writing to said, we need to do something in order to be saved. Do this ritual, follow this law. If you do this, then you're gonna be saved. Paul says, by no means, there's nothing that you can do to contribute to your own salvation. On the other hand, James, and what James is writing about here, James's group said, we don't need to do anything at all. God saved us through Jesus Christ, and now it doesn't matter how I live my life whatsoever. And James says, by no means. James and Paul are not enemies. In fact, they're standing back to back together, fighting off the enemy of false and dead faith. What Paul is saying is that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Your salvation is bought by no merit or doing of your own. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's a truth. James, on the other hand, is saying that true faith begins alone, but it doesn't stay alone. It is adorned by good works, works of goodness and righteousness after salvation. It is proven true and living faith before man by good works. God knows whether your faith is genuine, but do you? Well, here is the test that James gives. Does your faith work? Does your faith work? Faith that works is living faith. Keep reading verse 18 and see secondly James's argument. He pushes the principle further and he argues the point. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James gives us two types of people. One has faith, but no works. And the other one has works, but no faith. And here's the point. Both are wrong. Both of these are wrong. The Christian cannot have one, but not the other. The Christian has faith that produces works. Perhaps you go around and you say, I'm a Christian, but your actions say otherwise. Just like everyone else, you swear, you gossip, you create drama, you watch this or play that. You wanna have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you wanna sleep with them. Your ambitions in life are a good job with good money so that you can do whatever you want. You're directed more by the latest trends on social media 
than by the word of God? Or is it your neglect of actions altogether? You neglect to help a brother or a sister when you see them in need, to feed them, to clothe them. You don't stand up for them when they're being bullied. Or perhaps you neglect to obey your own parents. Do you resonate with any of that? Good works alone isn't enough. You must have faith. And faith by itself isn't enough. Your life must produce good works. Now, don't get this wrong. I'm not suggesting that you are saved by faith plus works. That's actually a heresy. We're saved by Jesus Christ alone and faith in him alone, by grace alone. But the genuineness, the authenticity of your faith is demonstrated by the way that you live. We see this in verse 18. James responds to the two people's dead faith. I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, James's faith will be demonstrated as genuine before others, before other people, by his good works. There is no fruit of, if there is no fruit of good works, then the tree isn't living, the tree is dead, it's barren. Do you get this picture that James is, that he's giving? The reformers, they say, you are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. You're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. True faith alone saves, but true faith never stays alone. It produces works. Verse 19 makes this clear. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. The Jews had a creed in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would repeat this. They confessed with their mouths, but they failed to truly practice the next line. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus repeats this as well. Mere intellectual affirmation or lip service, simply saying, isn't enough. It's not enough. Oh, quickly, if I pray this magic prayer or recite these words, then I'm saved. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? Well, actually, you're putting your trust in a prayer rather than in Christ, and you're missing the fruit that is produced, produced by true faith. And James makes this clear, doesn't he? Look at his example. You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, good start, but don't pat yourself on the back just yet. There's a bit of sarcasm in what James is saying because he says, even the demons believe. You pat yourself on the back for believing? Even the demons believe. In fact, the demons go one step further than that. They shudder. They actually respond to God's holiness and God's glory by shuddering. Do you do that? Faith that is simply lip service, simply an intellectual 
decision, uh uh-huh, logically this makes sense, I believe this, but has no action as the fruit of that faith is not so different to the faith of demons. It's not so different. The devil himself could pass the test if the test was simply, do you believe that God is real? Yes, he does. Do you believe that he is holy? Yes, he does. He would get full marks. In fact, he probably knows more about God than we do. The difference is that the devil hates God. The devil lives in rebellion towards God. He rages against God. He lives his own way. He believes in God. He knows that God is real and true and holy, but he hates it. That's the difference. So mere intellectual belief that God is real is not enough. When the demons met Jesus, they knew who he was. They shuddered. Matthew 8 tells us, verse 28 and 29, And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, the demon Possessed men cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's interesting, that wording, before the time. The demons here knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew that their hour of demise was coming. They knew that Jesus in the end would win. And they cried out in fear of him. This is the point. Dear Christian, knowledge isn't enough. Simply knowing intellectually the gospel is not enough. In John 2, 23 to 25, we see a very interesting encounter people had with Jesus. It says this, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, talking about Jesus, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. They believed in him, but Jesus knew better. He knew what was in them. They professed faith, but they couldn't fool God. Because God knew what was truly in them. Titus chapter 1 verse 16 tells us within the church, there are those who profess to know God, But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, it says. God doesn't need your actions as demonstration. He just needs to look at your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The thief on the cross didn't have enough time to demonstrate that his faith was genuine, but Jesus Christ knew that it was. Works, understand this, works are a demonstration for us, not for God. God already knows if your faith is genuine or not. They're simply a demonstration for us. God knows the truth and you can't fool him. God isn't fooled if you say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus but your life says otherwise. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
guess what? If you don't follow Jesus' commandments, then you're demonstrating that you don't love him. Yes, we will stumble. We will sin. Christians will continue to sin. We are still possessing the flesh, raging against it. It isn't about moral perfection. We can't have moral perfection on this side of eternity. But Christ already did for us. And that's why our faith isn't in ourselves, in our morally corrupt, imperfect self, but in the perfect Lord Jesus. That's why our faith needs to be in him. But does your heart long to obey Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to live for Jesus? Or are you living a life of sin, pretending to be a Christian, but taking advantage of grace? You know, there's a friend that I had in high school who would get drunk on the weekends, who would do other things that I'm not going to name, and then he would go to church on Sunday. And he said, well, I'll just pray for forgiveness when I get to church on Sunday. I'll live the way that I want to live during the week, doing what I want to do. I want to do that. That's fine. Feels good. I'll go do that. And then I'll get to church on Sunday. I'll just pray a little prayer and magically my sins are removed. Dear Christian, if that's you, that is dead faith. There are three essential elements to genuine living, saving faith. Three essential elements that I want to briefly cover. Firstly, you need to know the gospel. It starts with knowing the gospel. Remember, knowledge isn't enough. There's two more steps, but you need to first know the gospel. Romans 10, 17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You can't have faith if you haven't actually heard the gospel. You need to have a basic understanding of what the gospel actually is. That you are a sinner And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a saviour. And by putting your trust in him alone, you'll be saved from the wrath of God. Not the Mormon Jesus, not the Catholic Jesus, not these other Jesuses that are Jesus in name only, but actually they look very different. You need to know the Jesus of the true gospel. You need to know the gospel. Secondly, you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the gospel. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It isn't enough to simply know, to just keep it in the intellect. You have to also believe. You need to affirm that the gospel is true and follow it and believe it. Know the gospel. Believe the gospel. Thirdly, you need to live the gospel. You need to live the gospel. James chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Let that word dwell in you richly and take root in your heart and transform you is what he's saying which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's what James has been writing about. And this is really the point that James is focusing on. You need to truly rely upon the gospel and you need to live according to God's word. 
It needs to influence everything that you say, everything that you think, everything that you do. Think of a chair. Here's a commonly used analogy. Think of a chair. You look at a chair, you know that's a chair. Maybe someone's told you it's a chair. Maybe you've looked at it, four legs, it's, it's got a, a, a bottom, it's got a back, yep. Ticks the boxes intellectually, that's a chair. Then you need to believe that, yes, this is a chair. But your faith in the chair is demonstrated when you actually sit on it, isn't it? When you're living out and demonstrating your faith. James gives us two Old Testament examples of true faith. Read verse 20 to 25. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You know the story, right? You've heard it before. In Genesis 22, we read about God testing Abraham's faith. Now, God already knew the authenticity of Abraham's faith. He was saved back in Genesis 15 or justified according to God's word. But here is when his faith was demonstrated and proven to us. God told Abraham to go up a mountain and sacrifice his one and only son upon an altar. Abraham did this knowing that God doesn't delight in human sacrifice and trusting that God would provide a substitute. And seeing Abraham's faith true, God commanded him to stop and a goat or a, a lamb was provided to take the place of Abraham's son. By the way, this is a picture of the gospel. God gave his one and only son to be our substitute, to take our punishment, to take our place for sin. James says, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, Abraham's faith was demonstrated to be true by this action, by this example. That's Abraham. Now, what about Rahab? She is the complete opposite of Abraham. She was not audibly called by God. She didn't hear promises made to her by God that she was going to bless the nations. And yet she too had true faith. According to Joshua 2, she was a prostitute who had heard about God's salvation of the Jews from Egypt. And at risk of great peril, her own life at risk, she hid Jewish spies and helped them to escape. Her faith in the true God was tested by fire and it was found to be true. True faith is the kind of faith that is willing, like Abraham, to give up his ambitions for God, or like Rahab, to risk your life for God. That is how total and how true the, the trust and the faith of these people are. 
and why they're held up as such great examples. They're held up as heroes of the faith in Hebrews. And by the way, just a little side note, both of them, Rahab and Abraham, even though they're not that similar, they're both not only heroes of the faith, they are in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true faith. Faith that works is living faith. Finally, read verse 26. And James restates the point. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. True faith will yield the fruit of righteousness. And in that way, faith without works is dead faith. If nothing has changed in your life, if you keep living your life and doing what you want to do, pursuing your dreams, priority one is me, myself, and I, then your faith is dead. And you know, we can get so caught up on a moment. We can get caught up on a moment. Can I identify the moment that I put my trust in Jesus? And you put your faith in the moment rather than in Christ? Maybe there was a moment, but for many there isn't, especially if you grew up in the church. But less important than a moment is the simple answer to this question. This is how you tell. Not that moment a few years ago, a few months ago, but the answer to this question. Is your faith living or dead? In Matthew 7, at the closing of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Interesting that there's a fruit, there's a work that must be produced by genuine faith. The one who does the will of the Father. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I am aware that there are different types of people here tonight. You're not all the same. If you're here, your trust is in Christ and you can see fruit in your life that's been produced by the Holy Spirit, then keep going. Keep going. I'm not trying to come down hard on you because you're doing the right thing. You are following God faithfully. If your trust is in Him and there is fruit that is being produced in your life because of the Holy Spirit, you seek to follow God, you love God. Yes, you stumble and you fall, but you hate that. You want to live for God. He's your priority. Let this be an encouragement to you that your faith is genuine faith. That's what this passage is trying to say. But if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but you don't live that way at school, or you don't live like that when nobody's looking, or maybe you're goody two-shoes to your parents. But the truth is, you're a Christian by self-identification only. And truly, your faith is dead. If that is you, 
then please go before God and ask him to transform you. Put your trust in the Son of God alone and live for him alone. Know the gospel. Believe the gospel. Live the gospel. And if that's you, then would tonight be the first day of the rest of your life belonging to the kingdom of God. Faith that works is living faith. Is your faith living or is it dead? Let's pray. Father, you truly know what is in our hearts. You know each of us better than we know ourselves. Lord, I recognize that there are some here that would profess to be, a Christian, to be Christians and genuinely are, and I thank you for that. All of the leaders rejoice in that. We're glad to see faithful Christians that call themselves Christians and we can see in their life good fruit. May they be encouraged that their faith is genuine. May they, that give them a sort of assurance, not in themselves, but in you and your faithfulness in working in their life. I thank you for these and would you keep them and help them to continue on their way, walking by faith and belonging to your kingdom. But Lord, there are those that are here that may have a tendency to say they're a Christian, pretend to be a Christian, but their life says otherwise. And their faith, though they call it faith, is truly dead faith and it doesn't save Lord, there are so many distractions in high school, in our lives, at home, on our computers. There are so many things that compete for our attention and for our allegiance and desire for us to put them first. And we're told by this world to put ourselves first and to seek our dreams, to follow our heart. But Lord, we know that's not true. Would you help us to put that to death? Would you help any that are here that do not trust you wholeheartedly, that have not known the gospel, believed the gospel, and are not living the gospel, that they would put their trust in you, that they would turn from their sin and trust your son alone and live for him, to his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.